better, much better. Uh, listen, we have lots of opportunities to serve here at Grace coming up. We got the, uh, I think it was already mentioned before, but I want to reiterate, bike rally is this Saturday. It's a bicycle rally. And so I'll be teaching people how to ride their bike without training wheels over here. So if you're a little, a little person wants to learn how to ride without training wheels, come see me. Or if you're a big person wants to ride without training wheels, come see me and I'll do my very best. I don't guarantee my students can learn how to ride, but I have been able to teach all my kids and my nieces how to ride a bike without training wheels. And, and uh, my trick is I take the pedals off. That's what you do. Because when you're riding a bike, balance is what's hard, not pedaling. Thank you. Is that room temperature? Read my mind. I like that. Of course, nothing less than the best. This is an event in lieu of our uh, Easter egg hunt. Kind of, you know, didn't wasn't really able to do that this year, but we're looking forward to that, and it'll point us towards VBS, which also brings me to the next thing. If you have not signed up to help in VBS, there are still slots available. It's a board down the hallway here going into the fellowship hall. Please sign up. Uh, listen, I'm not just making a plea for you to give volunteer hours to. Vacation Bible School changes lives for eternity. How many of you in here were saved before the age of 12? Raise your hand. Saved before 12. Me too. All right, 12 years. Look at that. You have a chance this summer to impact a kid's life for eternity, okay? Won't you take advantage of that? What prevents you from being part of where God is working and moving? The answer is nothing, right? Whatever you can come up with. It, it, so work and help and support. If you're working, whatever you got going on, be in prayer for it. I was saved at a vacation Bible school, so I'll never be convinced of the lack of value of them, all right? And I'm sorry I got all this junk up here this morning. I have to empty my pockets when I'm preaching. Otherwise, I feel like I'm standing up here looking like MC Hammer from the early 90s, right? With, a, with my parachute pants on. Remember those from the late 80s, early 90s? Some of you still got your parachute pants, don't you? You're just waiting for it to come back around like bell bottoms, right? Sun in and parachute pants. Life was good in the late 80s, wasn't it? Okay. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 7, 1 through 17. In the last service, they had uh, the text from the previous week, and so I might want to double-check that, Jeff. I'm not sure if it's going to have this week's or last week's on there, but I'm prepared either way. Uh, we are moving into a section of five narratives here in Luke chapter 7. And what we're going to see in these two today, there's an interesting dichotomy that is there. Uh, have you ever been talking to someone or been near somebody and you didn't know who you were around? Has that ever happened to you? Uh, this happened to Becky one time. She was standing in a line. I said, uh, I think it said UPS in the first service. It was actually, she corrected me, it was the UPS store in St. Louis, Missouri. And there was a, a nice looking, nicely dressed man behind her, had a box under his arm of jerseys that he was mailing out. And people were coming up, talking to him, taking photographs with him, doing things like that. She was in front of Kurt Warner, quarterback for the St. Louis Rams at the UPS store and didn't really realize it until somebody, I think, mentioned his name. And uh, then she turned around and kind of remembered that. For those of you who are NFL fans, it was actually, I think, that same year that the uh, St. Louis Rams defeated the Tennessee Titans in the Super Bowl. So, wah, wah, wah. But you can't help but like Kurt Warner. He was a solid dude. He was a great guy. Got a great story where he was bagging groceries and got called to be an NFL quarterback. Can you imagine that? Going from bag boy to, to NFL quarterback overnight and winning the Super Bowl. Pretty amazing stuff. So we're going to see in this passage today, there's going to, there's going to be a familiarity. Becky said, I, I knew he looked familiar. I just couldn't place where I'd seen him from. Well, it turned out ESPN, that's where you'd seen him, right? <laughs> seen him on television, right? Uh, there is a familiarity that people can have with Jesus, right? 
but then still not truly understand who he is. So let's look at this together in the scriptures. All right, here we go. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of all the people, he entered Calpurnium. Now a centurion, centurion means a man, he's a soldier, he's like a general. Century is a hundred years. A centurion soldier is a, is a soldier who is over a hundred people. At least that is under his command. A centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is one who has built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but you say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority, set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had heard, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, had a considerable crowd, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came up and touched the beer. By the way, if you're not familiar with that term, it's not a normal term that's used. The beer is a platform that you would set a coffin on or a casket on. Or it is something that you would carry a body on that is deceased. So it's almost the closest thing that we would have. I don't know what we would have. Maybe a stretcher. Kind of like a stretcher but without wheels. People are toting this body on this beer. right? Not the kind you drink. It's the kind you put dead bodies on. right? It sounds the same but it's, it's pronounced. It's a different definition. And the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And I guess that's it. There's no more verses. I was thinking there was an 18, but there's not. In my notes, it's top 70. So this ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray he writes his truth on our hearts. All right, I want to introduce you to a group of people in North America that is a growing population segment. According to a recent article that I read in 
uh, and AP, which AP is supposed to be the most unbiased news source that we have in America, but I don't think they're unbiased, but they're supposed to be. Here is what they're reporting. <clears throat> AP Press, this is an article from October of 19. Share of Americans with no religious affiliation is growing. Okay. And they're using Pew Research to back this data up, which is a pretty reputable, reliable research group. So this article is most likely correct. Based on telephone surveys conducted in 18 and 19, Pew said Thursday, 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians. And I'm going to say, we'll call that a very loose definition of Christian, okay? Down from 77% in 09. Meanwhile, the portion that describes their religious identity as atheistic or agnostic or nothing in particular stands at 26%, which is up from 17% in 2009. So that's not very long ago in that kind of a shift. It says here both Protestants and Roman Catholic ranks are losing the population share. According to Pew, it said 43% of U.S. adults identify as Protestants. That just basically means not Catholic and church going. So that's a very broad definition. Down from 51% in 09, while 20% are Catholics, down from 23%. They're often referred to as nuns growing in multitude. No, no religious affiliation, no part of any kind of organized religion. Don't go to church. Don't know what that's about. The nuns. The rise of the nuns. Not N-U-N. N-O-N-E-S. The nuns. Okay. Uh, how are we to think about them as Christians? You ever ask yourself this? It may be interesting for you to know that in this article, only about, even though it's a significant population section, I mean, this is millions of Americans. We're not talking about people who live in Haiti. We're not talking about people who live in Papua New Guinea. We're talking about people that are tax-paying voters living within the borders of the United States from East Coast to West Coast, 26% of the population, nuns, no religious affiliation. Only about 4% of them are actually atheists. Does that surprise you? Only four of them claim to be atheists, 4% roughly. Another 7 to 8% claim to be agnostic. That's a big fancy word that just means they believe there is some higher power or being. They just don't know what that is. They can't figure that out. Not sure what that is not committed to that. How do they feel about Jesus? Well, as I've had conversations with nuns, and as I've spoken with them, I can make a few observations here on what they think. One is, there are parts about Jesus that appeal to them. For example, Jesus, the one who overthrows authority, the one who makes whips and runs out the money changers from the temple, that is appealing this generation of nuns. Jesus, the one who is compassion, who feeds the poor, that is appealing to the nuns. Jesus, the political radical who shakes things up, also appealing. What's not appealing is Jesus, God in human form. Jesus, Lord and Savior. That's the line. Okay? So there's a familiarity here, but there is a lack of understanding. So let's rewind the tape here and let's look at this text, see if we can understand what's happening here and, and make this more clear for our own lives and hearts. First of all, we have two narrative passages. Each one here are different. One of the reasons I believe the Bible is 100% true is because the Bible offends some part of every culture. It is offensive at some level to every culture. Luke 7, 
Luke is primarily writing to Gentiles, people like me and you, trying to explain to them that Jesus is Savior. He wants, we are Theopolis. He wants us to know who Jesus is. There's a section here in Luke 7, this first narrative piece we're looking at, this would have been very offensive to an early century Jew. Okay? Why would this have been offensive? Well, let's look at it here. First of all, this is a story of an interaction between Jesus and a centurion soldier, someone who is an authority and who works for the oppressing government. This man was in an occupying force. The Romans were occupying Israel. They were able to exact taxes from them. And do you think Jewish people are happy to pay extra taxes? Let me ask you, are you happy to pay extra taxes this year? Anybody want to sign up for that? Right? One of the reasons we like funding our military is we don't want to get knocked over and pay royalties back to Britain or any of these other places. We like being free and having as much money as we can. And furthermore, we like having the ability to make our own laws, right? Having laws handed down from Rome was just about an abomination to an ancient Jewish person. And it was obnoxious to be under Roman rule in daily living. Let's say it's Friday before the Sabbath and you're with your family in town. You had to buy some things for the Seder dinner and you're in the marketplace and you got your kids with you and your wife with you. And there's a, there's a, a legion of Roman soldiers moving through. But one of these soldiers is having a bad day. He's got, he rolled his ankle and he's carrying his equipment. He's getting tired. It's hot. It's sweaty. It's the Middle East. It's hot, man. It's really hot. At any moment, they could tap any of the able-bodied men of Israel on the shoulder and say, you, get this right here, get my military garb, you're going to carry this for one mile for me. You could just snatch him up. You're just out shopping with your family. You're just at the market with your family. Immediately pull him in there. So do you think the Jewish people loved the Roman soldiers? you think they loved the commander who was over the guys? They would constantly be snatching their men out of the marketplace and making them carry their heavy uh, military equipment as far as they wanted. That's why Jesus said, if you get tapped on the shoulder to carry your equipment one mile, carry it two miles. You're nobody's victim. Go above and beyond what is being asked of you, right? Well, most of the Jews did not even like being asked. This is an enemy, right? What, what happens here? Well, what do we know about this guy? This guy apparently... He's stationed here. He is well acquainted with the Jewish leaders, as we can see here in these verses. Jesus tells us here, or excuse me, the scriptures, Luke tells us here in verse 4 that they, he is worthy, right? That, that he actually has Jewish leaders who go to Jesus and make intercession for him. He's got a, a sick servant that he wants healed. He's heard Jesus can heal people. He wants that for his servant. He believes Jesus can do this. He must believe. I think this man must have rejected the Roman gods and had some sort of infatuation with the God of the Bible, the God of the Jews, because it says here that he loves our nation and he built a synagogues. He's building places where they can meet together and worship Yahweh. He's a regular contributor to the building fund. He builds and makes sure we have nice places to go to. So, of course, they're going to make, uh, make intercession for this guy with Jesus. They're going to come to Jesus and ask him for help. And Jesus, is, of course, is not obligated to do this. God is obligated to no man or woman. But out of compassion here, he, he goes. And we see something interesting here. So one of the things that comes out of this passage, I think, is this is a, this is a story of integrity, isn't it? 
have a centurion soldier here who has, he's a man of integrity. He loves the people. He has helped build them. He's, he is intrigued by worship. He must at some level worship the one true and living God. And this reaction that he gets is Jesus approaches him, right? Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not, what? Worthy. I am not worthy for you to come into my house. This is a man who understands his place. A lot of people get in trouble because they don't understand their place in this world, right? Uh, there, was a, <clears throat> there was a great, I, I was in counseling for a brief minute at Southern Seminary and, and decided that I actually didn't like doing counseling uh, all day with people, like doing a son, but all day was hard. And I remember reading this one author, he talked about people that were in mental institutions, you know, people that we medicate and keep asleep and all that. He said there's three categories of people, right? One is they're there because they truly have a medical condition. Their brain doesn't function as it properly should. That's a third of them. He said a third of them are under demonic oppression or possession. And he argued that another third of them did not understand their place in this world, did not understand and have a proper worldview, and because of that could not function in normal society. That was the three reasons that he put down for why they were in mental institutions. He may be right. He may be right. This man, though, he understands. He understands his place. He shows humility. He knows he's not deserving of the attention of Christ, nor of this miracle here. He goes on to make this even more clear. It's not just a, a, a story here about humility. There's a, there's an, a story here of authority. Look, look what he says here. For Therefore I do not presume, right? What does presume mean? What does being presumptuous mean? It means that you just kind of take advantage of the goodness of another. You know, uh, this is what con artists do. Con artists live off presumption. They presume people will give them money because they give them or make up a good enough heartbreaking story. Uh, we're constantly watching for con men, right? He doesn't want to present himself as that. He's not that. He has integrity, right? And he's saying, don't trouble yourself by even coming here. You can just say, go. This is a story about authority. He understands who, who this is. This is somebody who can say and command and do. He can say it from afar. He can pray from afar. And that servant will be healed. He knows that is possible because of the authority that is there. He understands authority. And I know that's a bad word in our culture today. People don't like authority. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been in premarital counseling sessions. Uh, not here, of course, in other places. And the word submission will come up in vows. And you want to talk... You would have think you would have said the word Nazi or dropped an F-bomb or something like that. I mean, good night. I have seen all kinds of reactions. I didn't write the thing. I just deliver the mail. I'm the mailman, friends. And this is God's design. If you don't like God's design, take it up with the commander-in-chief. I'm just one of the soldiers here, right? Run it up the chain of command. God has set things into authority. Now, does that mean that every household is ran correctly? And that authority is used correctly in those households? Absolutely not. There are many examples where men abuse their authority and everyone under them suffers. But when authority is used correctly, when it is used as God has intended, everyone who is under that authority flourishes, right? There is a flourishing that is there. Authority is God's concept. What's the op I've oftentimes thought, you know, man, it is a rough time to be a police officer. You know what? I mean, it, it may not be as bad in more conservative areas, but just two neighboring counties over, there was a couple of cops that lost their lives this week 
You should be praying for that family. I've got an uncle who's a police officer, and he tells me it's just getting increasingly harder. Every time there's a bad cop that uses their authority wrong, and that comes to light, it makes their job that much harder, and they all get blamed for that. We need to be praying for our police department, that they would be those who understood authority, like this centurion soldier, right? Understands authority correctly, rightly. That is God's intention and design. Lastly, this is a story of faith, right? Look at this. I love this part here. Right to a man of authority with soldiers under me, he says. And then when verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he, what's it say, church? Marveled. You ever wonder what makes Jesus marvel? Right? What's he marveling at? Now, context is key. The placement of verse 9 is located immediately after verse 7, which shows humility because there's no presumption, right? If you were here Wednesday night, we've been talking about the attributes of God. This past Wednesday, we talked about the goodness of God. In Romans 2, it tells us that we're not to presume on God's goodness. Everything good in your life, right? Whatever you've got in your life that's good. Like if you got up this morning and you had a good cup of coffee, God's the author of all those things. Everything good you have is because God has given it to you. All good things come from the Lord. The question is, why does he give us good things? Well, for believers, he's a good father who loves his children, and it is his joy to give his children good things. Then why does he give unbelievers good things? Sometimes he gives unbelievers good things to a point we struggle as believers with that. Romans 2 tells us he gives us good, he gives unbelievers good things so they don't presume on God, but rather would be turned to repentance. They have good things so they would turn to him in repentance, right? So this man shows humility. He is not being presumptuous as Roman 2 warns us against. He is saying he understands authority and this is how this works. He's not worthy for him to come in. And Jesus marvels at this. And then he says something. Verse 9 would be highly offensive for any first century Jew. I tell you not even in where? Not even in Israel. Have I have I found such faith? I was trying to think, how could I make this more clear? Like, what if we were, what if we were visiting an area where there were no Christian churches to speak of? We were surrounded by animalistic, paganistic worship in Papua New Guinea, and a, and a man there who is who is an enemy of of the church comes out, and I would say, man, I've never even seen faith like this in the church. It'd be offensive if you were with me on that mission trip, right? Who would want to hear that? Well, surely we have good faith, Pastor, right? Jesus, surely we have faith. We are the chosen people who have been designated to bring about the Messiah. And yet Jesus says what? But they don't really believe, do they? See, here's the lacking piece and component. They're familiar with Jesus. They know him. He's around them. He does miracles in the front of them. And they're happy for him. They're happy to have free, free health care and free uh, food stamps, right? As he makes more and more food. He's ha- they're happy for all that. They don't see him as Lord, as God. But there's something in this soldier he understands. He understands better than all of the Israelites that surround him. Can you imagine being a first century Jew and reading that? That would be highly offensive. It gives credence to the truth of the scripture, doesn't it? All right, now we move to the story of this widow kind of a story is this? Let's, first of all, let's compare these two things. 
In the first story, you have a man. Second story, you have a woman, right? In the first story, you have a Gentile. In the second story, you have a Jew. In the first story, you have someone asking Jesus for something. He makes sure that he sends people who ask on his behalf. Is the widow asking Jesus for anything? No, she's not. So these are different, almost polar opposite situations. It says here that he comes to this small town in Calpurnium, and there's this great crowd that is there. This woman had already lost her husband. That's, that's a prime means of financial support. It's a very patriarchal type society. And usually a means that women would be uh, taken care of, particularly on the poverty side of this culture, is they had a son. Son would make sure their mother was taken care of. Now she's lost her son. The Bible tells us she has no other sons. So all of her social security, this is long before FDR is born and social security is implemented. This was the social security was the children that you had. That's why you see in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, when there were widows who had no children, had no family to take care of them, they would oftentimes be brought in to the temple for service. The temple would make sure they remained fed and taken care of and sort of fill in that void. They became the responsibility of the faith community. That principle kind of still remains, right? We see in the New Testament that widows, there's a list the church kept. But there's a very specific reason to get on that list. To be on that list, you couldn't have any family. You couldn't have any kids that could help you or take care of you in the New Testament church. So sometimes we want to define widow a little bit more expansive even than the New Testament does when we adopt them and take care of those needs. So what, what's going on here? we got this widow. A young man has died. This is a small town. Jesus is really a... Sometimes I feel bad because, you know, I thought by the time I reached the age I was in, I'd be like, oh, man, I'm going to be pastor of a church of... You know, a thousand people in a, a large city somewhere, and it's going to be great. But then I'm reminded of passages like this. Jesus was a country preacher who preached in rural areas. This was a small town here in a Calpurnium area, and somebody has died in this community. What happens in a small rural town when somebody young dies? The whole community comes out, don't they? Everybody comes out and supports. When there's a child or a, a young person that dies, a lot of people are there. And it's no different here, right? The people are out in droves to support this lady. No doubt these people feel sorry for her. This is a, you know, this story here, the, the previous one, we had a sick servant who was teetering on death. Here we have somebody who's died. This is a story of finality. Somebody is dead, right? People usually don't come back from that. This is a story of sympathy. The people in the story are surrounding her. They feel sympathetic towards her. They wish they could do something to help her, but largely don't know what to do. Listen, I've done a lot of grief share classes and counseling with people that have been in grief over deep loss. Don't get mad at people at church whenever they don't do anything when you're in grief. It's not that they don't love you and they don't care for you. They just don't know what to do most of the times. People at times, a lot of times in church, they don't know what to do. And I know it's not fair to you when you're in grief to have to tell people what they need to do to, to minister to you correctly, but you kind of have to. <laughs> if you want to be ministered to, you kind of have to tell them. And I'm sorry it's that way, but it's been that way now for 2,000 years, probably not changing for you, right? That's just the reality of the situation. So what happens here? This is a story of authority as well. Here Jesus is able to rebuke a disease from afar, and it leaves him. What happens, in, what happens in this one? In the previous one, he did that. In this one, what's he able to do? He touches the beer. He touches the, 
the the cot or whatever this thing stretcher that this body's on you know in ancient israel they didn't do embalming they didn't do mummifications they just put the body in the tomb as quickly as possible it is altogether possible that this man had probably died that morning like that he was being buried the same day that he passed away and so when we look at this passage what we're seeing here is a young man who freshly dead right uh, the grief is fresh Everything just happened. And Jesus here, what's he do? Again, we see him reaching out and touching, right? Remember in the Old Testament, if you were a Nazarite, you weren't allowed to touch anything that was dead. Now, apparently he didn't touch him per se, but he touched the thing that was supporting him and holding him up. And Jesus commands the dead body. <laughs> now listen, you, this is a big deal. If you don't believe me, y'all go down to teach your funeral home when I'm done preaching today and, and tell all those corpses that are in the casket to get up and see how many of them respond to you, right? There's only one person who can tell a stone-cold dead corpse to get up, and it's going to get up, and that's God. That's Jesus Christ. Luke here is showing us beyond the shadow of a doubt. He commands, right? And look what it says here. Uh, it says here, and he came up and touched the beer, and the bears stood still. And they said, young man, I say to you, arise. Look at 15. What's it say? And the dead man sat up. I've, I've thought about this verse a lot in my life. Like, and there was a guy, some of you are probably too young to remember this guy. Some of you will know who he is. Ray Stevens. Do you remember Ray Stevens from years ago? Some of you do. Ray Stevens, if you're not familiar with him, he's basically like the Weird Al Yankovic, but for Christians. When you say that's a fair way to say it, yeah, he's kind of that way. Uh, he used to have this song called Ain't Sitting Up With The Dead No More. Has anybody ever heard that song? It is hilarious. Like, it's about years ago, they used to sit up with the dead all night. Why they did it, I'm not sure, but it was a custom that was common in the U.S. This guy died, this old man died, he was sitting up in his chair. Well... By the time the funeral home and everything got to him, rigor mortis had set in, and he was sitting in the sitting position. So every time they put him down in the casket, he'd raise up. He'd just sit right up. So they got a bunch of chains and chained him down in this casket in the song. And then a big thunderstorm came, shook the house, something happened. Somebody hit the casket. I don't remember. The chains broke loose. And that old man sat up in the casket, and everybody just scrambled getting away from it, right? I mean, come on now, listen. I've thought a lot about this. You think about two crazy supernatural events that happened in the Bible. One being the rapture where people just randomly disappear. And one being people return back from the dead. Which one do you think is a little more freaky? In my opinion, people coming back from the dead is a little more freaky, right? Like people kind of disappear in our culture as it is, especially people in Alaska. I don't know what's going on with that, but there's a lot of people go missing and disappear in Alaska. Some of them, I think, want to disappear. But there is something crazy about somebody being pronounced dead. They're carrying him to be buried, and the guy sits up, which would have been enough for me to need a change of pants. But then he speaks, right? He speaks. I mean, uh, no wonder it says this, right? The man sat up, and he began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And look what verse 16 says. Fear sees them all. You think? I guarantee it, fear sees them all. But then it goes on to say, and they glorified God. Some of them must have recognized here. Only God can do such things. And then they go on and say, a great prophet. Again, they're missing the title, aren't they? You know, Muslims think Jesus was a great prophet, but they don't think he was God. 
They listen to his teaching. They have an affirmation for his teachings, but they don't believe he's, he don't believe he's God. This is a story about identification. This is a story about identity, isn't it? It's a story about uh, fears being chased out, death being commanded over, and identifying who Jesus truly is. Mm. God has, but then they say it in the second one, God had visited the people, and he had. And it goes on to say the, re- the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. A couple of theological truths we need to, we need a couple of values here, theological truths, values we need to walk away with from this. First of all, think about legacy, right? What did the Samaritan have to offer as a legacy? You can actually still go to Israel today and find some of these synagogues, the foundations of them that this centurion built. It'll even say that it'll be inscribed in Greek. So there's some legacy that was left there, a financial legacy. What, what legacy does this widow have? Does she have money to build temples and, and to give to the work of God? No, she has nothing. What's that mean? Well, just because you give to the building program, because you're here regularly and your pastor and all your friends here are glad to see you. You know, all those deeds, all that legacy you're trying to build up, doesn't matter. Where you came from, what color your hair is, what color your eyes are, what color your skin is, doesn't matter. What matters to Jesus is do you have faith in who he is? Do you have faith? Your deeds don't matter. What you can give, what you can contribute to doesn't matter. Because here's the bottom line that we're learning in this passage. Jesus will always respond to faith, but he does not always respond to request. Do you see that in the passage? And Jesus is always in authority, even over death. Even over death. So what does this mean for me? Here's what this means for you. You have a personal decision to make here with this truth that's been presented. You must submit to God's authority, as the centurion did and as this woman did, right? You must admit that you are not entitled to God's grace. Have you ever had a thought in your mind, deep down, maybe in the quiet recess, that God must do this? No, he mustn't. You know what that is? That's pride. Or have you ever had this thought? Well, God, you're obligated to do this because I've done this or because of who I am. God is obligated to no man and to no woman. That is pride. And pride must be put to death. And submission to who Jesus is must be done. You see, we must accept in humility by faith. We must come to the point as the centurion soldier and as this woman did in this narrative that Jesus Christ is our only hope. There is no other hope. All other lights have faded. He is the only one that remains. What does that mean? What does that look like? Romans tells us. It looks like repentance and it looks like belief. Now listen, some of you are going to hear the sermon today. It's just going to fly by you. I want you tonight, when you're alone by yourself, nobody's looking, 
just you and Christ alone. Look in the mirror and ask yourself this question. Do I truly believe? Do I really have faith here like the centurion? Do I have faith that Jesus is who he says he is? That he is God, that he is Lord, that he is Savior? He is the only one who can command death and it withdraws. The only one who can command sickness and it withdraws and leaves. The only one who can command an angry storm and it stops. Or am I kind of like the nuns? Man, I like a lot of things about Jesus. But really, I don't know that I'm going to go all the way and believe all that. That's the only places there are. This week, I was watching an interview with an atheist. And uh, I can't remember the guy's name. They do magic. They got a show where they do magic tricks. And they try to, they try to get them to guess how they did the magic trick. That's Penn and Teller, I think. One of them's an atheist. Y'all ever seen these guys before? And you know what he said to me once? He said, or he didn't say to me, he said in this interview, he said... Um, I have a lot more respect for people. He called them fundamentalists. He meant people who believe the Bible, believe who Jesus is. He said, because I respect people who will point at me and say, you're wrong. He said, you know, when I talk to people who are liberal Christians, they'll say, well, it's all your journey, your path, your whatever. He said, I got no respect for that. He said, because there's a mutual respect and understanding there. This passage here, this is the kind of passage that puts a finger in our face and says, who do you say he is? Who's the real identity of Jesus? Do you, do you take him as he is presented? Or do you take him as the nuns do? Glad to have a little bit of him in your life, but not for him to be your king. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you this, this evening, this morning, and we're so thankful for texts like this. We're thankful for the truth that is here, for the reality that is here, for the faith that is here, for the call to radical faith from the very tips of our socks to the top of our head, we, we believe without question you are who you say you are. And Lord, not that we don't struggle at times, but God, we know you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the only hope that we can have. Lord, help us here at Grace Baptist Church, help each and every one of us to have faith that causes Jesus to marvel. Faith that when we believe in humility and in reverence, when we believe, when no, when everybody else calls us crazy for believing, we hold that belief still. And we give you the praise for that. We pray and ask these things and we praise you in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today, when the beer comes for your, for your body, for your corpse, as it comes for all of us, what will we say at your funeral? Will they say, oh, he, he was a hard worker, loved his family, loved watching Tennessee football, great, that's very unimpressive. Or will they say, no, this was a man, this was a woman who loved Jesus first and foremost who proclaimed who they were with a faith that made others marvel and that we believe made Jesus marvel. Where are you at this morning? Where are you at? Be back here to pray with you or to help you know Christ better as we sing this song of response. Please stand. Please stand.